Wiretap activated. Now recording just dumb enough podcast with Larry Forletta. Did you hear something? No? All right. Hey, everybody. Larry Forletta is our guest today, and he spent three decades of his life as federal special agent for the DEA. After retirement, Larry opened his own private company, serving as a trusted consultant and advisor to government officials dealing with law enforcement issues and educational facilities on school violence and drug abuse. Couple things before we get started. I just wanted to make a note that this episode had some particularly bad Wi-Fi connections, which I haven't seen in any episode since, but just a heads up. Also, I had my first instance of catastrophically bad computer failure. While editing an episode that was not this one, I lost all of its data. And that was rough, and it made me want to throw my computer out. But I didn't, so we're here. I have a little special reminder for everyone listening to the show to share it with your friends and family. Please, please, please. Also, Just Dumb Enough has been played in almost 20 countries as of this week. That's insane, considering that it hasn't even been out for two months yet. Thank you all so much. Now, let's crack down on crime. Welcome to the show, Larry Forletta. Colt, good to be with you, and uh, I'm honored to be on your show, and thanks for having me today. Yeah, I'm glad to have you on. Glad you could make it. So uh, for everybody out there, why don't you give a little intro about yourself? Sure. I'm a retired uh, DEA agent, Drug Enforcement Administration. Uh, I retired just about 17 years ago and started my own investigation business as to where I'm at today. Our investigation business has been around about 17 years now. Uh, we also have a podcast that call, that's called Forletta Investigates, and it, it's a, uh, a true law enforcement show, I should say, because the guests are a lot of retired guys, and, and uh, we talk about real-life situations and some of the situations that a lot of us have been in. And uh, before I go any further, I just wanted to mention that, that we lost a DEA agent yesterday. He was shot and killed in uh, Tucson, Arizona, him. Another agent and a task force officer were wounded. Uh, they were doing a, what we refer to as an interdiction checkpoint in Tucson, Arizona, and uh, they were boarding an Amtrak change and they were subsequently shot. So uh, that's the nature and danger of the business that law enforcement is in. Yeah, I'm very sorry to hear about that. Could you tell us more? I know I heard some some terminology going into you know what exactly they were doing. Could you tell us a little more about that? Well, when you when we talk about interdiction, um, they go into airports or train stations. Uh, they look at individuals that may fit a certain profile, uh, or they may have information that somebody may be transporting either drugs or money, uh, which is sometimes that's you know that's the case. I don't know all the circumstances and the thing that just happened in Tucson, but that's generally what it is. I was on an interdiction team, so I understand, uh, you know, 
how you approach people and how you talk to them and you try to get information from them. And, you know, once you start suspecting that they're not answering the questions properly or they're trying to hide something, you know, then you go a little further uh, to investigate. But it's, it's not uncommon. Interdiction has been going on probably back in the 80s when they started these profile teams and interdiction through our airports and bus stations and train stations. And uh, it's, been a, uh, it's been a very successful program. You know, we're able to interdict drugs before they actually hit the streets or, you know, we identify organizations that way. For example, you know, this, these guys could have been couriers or mules transporting drugs to somewhere to meet somebody. And that's how you, you know, you develop the information intelligence and how a certain organization is, uh, you know, supplying and bringing drugs into the United States. And in this case, it was Tucson, Arizona. So Mexico is right over the border. And since right now we have such a, an open border, the drugs are fleeing slowly uh, every day, more than, than it's ever been. Yeah. And that doesn't sound like it's going to uh, help us with the current drug crisis that we find ourselves in. Well, it only adds fuel to the fire. Let me tell you that much, because, you know, the Border Patrol does a really great job. Their hands are tied right now dealing with other issues and they're, they're not able to do their job properly. So when you have those set of circumstances, it makes things difficult for everybody. So when you're looking at statistics, I mean, and I hate to use that word statistics when people lose their lives, but when you have 90 to 100,000 Americans dying every day in this country from drugs, you know, then somebody's got to, you know, wake up and say, hey, we got to start doing something about this. And, you know, one of the biggest problems right now is fentanyl coming across uh, the Mexican border. And uh, fentanyl is poison uh, at the end of the day. You know, a lot of the uh, pills that are out on the street, a lot of them are counterfeit and they're laced with fentanyl. So as DEA goes along and says, hey, look, you know, one pill can kill. And that's what's happening. You know, we're getting, and I don't want to just say kids, but we're getting some that are on the experimental stages. You know, before, you know, you'd have a euphoria and if you overdosed in, in certain circumstances, you wouldn't die. But now it's death. Death is just about guaranteed to you if you're taking and using these uh, counterfeit pills, which are all over the streets of the United States. You know, we try to tell people, hey, you got to go to your doctor to get prescription drugs. Don't buy it on the street. It is extremely dangerous now to buy those drugs on the streets. Yeah. And I had the ability to talk to someone who is a recovered drug addict and uh, he had talked about, you know, using heroin for quite a while and then just once getting uh, fentanyl and how how much more devastating it was and how we immediately overdosed. Is there a reason that fentanyl is is the go to? Like, why is that being? Uh... Well, well, fentanyl is is cheap, obviously, to make, you know, and it's it's being compressed into the pill form now. You know, fentanyl has a legitimate use. Uh, because it's, it's used to treat patients who are in pain and suffering, you know, for like cancer patients, et cetera. But those are legitimate uses. So what's happening is now the, uh, don't know if you're aware of this, but the Chinese are well behind this uh, because they manufacture a lot of it in China. And it goes from the Chinese criminal organizations to the Mexican criminal organizations. And 
So we, we got a big problem on our hands, you know, besides everything else in dealing with, with China. But right now, you know, this is, this is like a chemical warfare when you look at it, because, um, you know, even with COVID as bad as that is, you know, this, this situation has been going on for years now. Something has to, has to be done because we're just losing too many of our kids in this country. Yeah, absolutely. I guess it's the first time that I've thought about it when you brought it up, but is there a lot of crossover between different criminal organizations? Yeah, there is. There's also competition as well. Um, so, you know, some, the bigger cartels that operate in Mexico, you know, they're always in competition. That's why there's a lot of murders and, uh, and there's of course a lot of government corruption in Mexico. You know, Colombia went through this way back in the 80s, 70s, 80s. And fortunately, the Colombian government was eventually able to control the country, so to speak. And we had a DEA had, has a big presence in Colombia and in Mexico as well. And we're in about 70 foreign countries worldwide. So we work a lot with the foreign governments uh, to try to help them with their issues there. And so, you know, that's all, that's all part of it. But when, you know, when our borders are open, it's just, uh, it increases the operations for the cartels because the border patrol, you know, they're busy, you know, watching little kids come across our border with no parents. And, uh, you know, you have to fill for them because that's not what they're trained to do. They're not a babysitting business. You know, they're government agents who go out and risk their lives to try to stop what comes into our country every day. So when you're in that kind of situation, you're being distracted. And really, it's a ploy, you know, by the cartels. They're not stupid. They're very smart and cunning. You know, it's about making billions of dollars. So whatever they can do to distract law enforcement on the borders, that's, that's how easy it is to, to start moving drugs. And now, even with a tighter control, we've always had issues of drugs coming in, but not to this extent. Yeah. And. I mean, I don't know a lot, obviously, about the uh, what's going on at the border. I do know that it's, you know, thousands of people I've heard it at certain times coming across and how hard is it to slip, you know, a couple of people into a, a crowd like that. But is it, I mean, is it relatively new that we're having this border crisis as well as a, you know, a drug crisis? Well, I think they've always gone hand in hand. You know, we've had different at different times different issues, different political administrations uh, in there. So this in, in, in this thing, you know, we, we try to stay away from politics. Law enforcement doesn't really like to get involved in politics. They just want to do their job. And so when your job is hampered by the politicians, then you have to begin to look, you know, what's the reason behind this and why are we doing this? Because at the end of the day, we're all Americans. Doesn't matter what party you belong to. It should matter about saving lives and making sure that uh, that our kids aren't dying every day. That's what's important to law enforcement. Absolutely. I mean, it's an honorable mission to do, and it's unfortunate that get, it gets held up by anyone on any side. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, it's it, there's no, you know, one political party might try to do outdo the other, you know, in, in the political schemes. But at the end of the day, uh, law enforcement doesn't have time to play those kind of games because we have to deal with real life situations and, and uh, you know, trying to protect the American citizens because that's, 
one of government's main functions is to protect its citizens. Yeah. And when you're looking at the DEA, which I keep wanting to say agency and not administration, and I'm having to correct myself that's, mentally. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, when you're looking at the DEA, is there like a, a priority list as far as, you know, we try and go after X drug or we try and go after X organization before others? Well, we always target uh, organizations because that's what our jobs to do. Our job is to dismantle that organization and bring them into justice because organizations, they have transportation units like the mules or some cases like in, in Colombia, they built submarines, you know, ships, airplanes, et cetera, uh, for the transportation modes. Um, so we tried to uh, focus the smuggling routes, the organizations. We were in Afghanistan not long ago, working with the, our military counterparts over there, you know, destroying poppy fields and arresting some of the Taliban, you know, that were involved in the drug trade. And believe me, they're terrorists and they're involved in the drug trade because they need the money to function. You can't buy weapons without money. So we do a lot of different things. And I, as I mentioned, they're in over 70 foreign countries. And I used Afghanistan because we were embedded with the military. We had a special operations group that worked strictly with the military over there. And, and of course, we've had some agents killed over there. And we had uh, one uh, that I interviewed on my podcast, Joe Persante is his name. He, he, was, uh, he got blinded over there. He got shot in the head by a Taliban sniper and survived it. Um, so, you know, that's, and like I said, we have good working relationships with our foreign country counterparts, because our mission there is really to work with them and help them with their issues. Because, you know, governments can fall and be controlled by criminal organizations. And that's what kind of happens in Mexico right now. They're controlled, no doubt about it. You, you want to try to, you know, work things out, try to trust them with information, and you just don't know who's on the payroll. And is there Obviously, there's a certain amount, but is there like a heavy influence as well in that in the Chinese government when you were talking about it earlier? Well, in a, in a Chinese government, I'm sure because of their society, they know who's involved in what. You know, they pretty much, the Communist Party pretty much controls China and they control people and they control movements. So they have a pretty good understanding, even with all the thousands of counterfeit products that come into this country that come through China, uh, you know, there's factories over there that manufacture counterfeit. So at the end of the day, somebody is getting their hand greased somewhere, you know? So they knew, they know what's going on. You know, it's almost like a willful blind eye that they do, you know, let's make no bones about it. They're enemies of the United States. And they, they would love to see our country collapse in, in a minute. Sure. I mean, 70 is a lot, obviously. Are there countries on that list that I think would surprise people? You know what? I don't think there's any country that would surprise anybody because this is a worldwide phenomenon. You know, there's transnational criminal organizations that operate in just about every country. So nobody is immune from the criminal elements. Some are just better controlled than others. Um, but 
yeah, there's, I mean, it's just, it is a worldwide problem. So there isn't any place uh, in the world that I know, unless you're on some remote island, that, there, that there's not those kind of issues. Right. It led into, I have one of my first ever listener questions that you get, and it is far smarter, I think, than most of the questions I come up with. And they asked, what overlap does the DEA have with military training in either hand-to-hand or intelligence gathering? Well, we uh, actually, we have, uh, I I know from my own experience, we have trained some of the military elements uh, about uh, drug trafficking, certain like the National Guard groups, you know, things of that nature. In terms of intelligence, uh, we share, we're part of the National Security Council. So we share information with the military and with all of our counterparts, different law enforcement agencies like the FBI, CIA, State Department, et cetera. Uh, so that's kind of how that works. We also have these task forces that are comprised of different federal law enforcement agencies working under a DEA umbrella, whether it's a, you know an intelligence operation like uh, we have uh, what's called EPIC, it's the El Paso Intelligence Center. Uh, we have what they call Special Operations Division, which are comprised of multinational law enforcement agencies and some international partners. So nobody alone can solve the drug problem. Not one federal agency can solve the drug problem. We have to do it as a combined and collective effort to dismantle and destroy these organizations. I mean, our goal as a single mission agency is to stop drug traffickers. And so we go after them in a variety of ways. Obviously, one of the main reasons is to follow the money. Uh, that is a big disruptor for their operations. So you can seize drugs until now, until the end of the world. But if you don't disrupt their operations, especially when it comes to the financing, uh, that, that's a big, big part of it. Absolutely. And it sounds like from what you had said earlier, you have operatives from, I'm sure, each of these groups that will embed in you know military groups and I assume assist in some of that intelligence and some of the you know just the the planning and the overall mission. Yeah, that's I mean, you know, the things that you try to be careful in foreign countries, especially, is who you are working with and who do you trust. And so you have to have a very vetted process uh, that DEA has, especially overseas. There is a vetted process that, that goes on. So in, in terms of our military, I mean, you know, whatever information that becomes necessary, and, and as I mentioned, these multi-agencies, uh, you know, terrorism is involved with drug trafficking because, and we discovered that long ago, because the, in Colombia, for example, there was a group called the FARC. They're still, I think they're still around, but they're not as once powerful as they were in, in Colombia. So, you know, we brought it to light that FARC was involved in the drug trade to, you know, to buy themselves weapons and, of course, you know, fight the Colombian government. So that's just, you know, one part of it. But a lot of these organizations, terrorist organizations or criminals, you know, I just call the terrorist organization a criminal on steroids. It's the same thing when you look at it. Because, um, you know, they have no respect for human life. They don't care about it. They have a mission and they want to accomplish it in whatever means it takes. We, on the other hand, have to abide by the rules and laws of our country and in 
foreign countries. So they always have that advantage in, in that sense. Yeah. And when you differentiate between criminal and terrorist, is it more of like a criminal tries to stay in the background and a terrorist organization just doesn't care? Yeah. Well, it all depends. But yeah, sometimes some of the criminal organizations, a lot of them don't want to be exposed, especially their leaders. But we know who just about who, who all the leaders are in any of these major, you know, drug traffic organizations, whether then, you know, Southeast Asia, Middle East, Africa, there, there's a whole, you know, it's like a big conglomerate. Um, so uh, again, even in Somalia, when, you know, you have a weak government there. So there's terrorists that operate their camps in some of these places, which is now the big concern about um, Afghanistan. Yeah. I mean, Afghanistan is now just controlled by the Taliban, correct? Right. Yep. So, so it's a terrorist, it's a terrorist organization controlling a country. Yeah. And as I understand it, their primary income before everything else, other than probably the uh, arms dealing to an extent is heroin, right? Yep. One of the major exporters of heroin is Afghanistan. And does that their heroin stay kind of in the, the Euro Asia area or does it oh, know, no. globalize as well? It's globalized for sure. Okay. So we see it here just as, just as well. Oh yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Okay. Do you have any opinions yourself about how the opioid epidemic has, I would say almost certainly worsened during this, uh, the pandemic and the lockdown and everything else that we've had? Well, you know, I, I guess that's part of the fuel uh, of the problem, but the problem has been, has been going on for I don't know, a long time. You know, I can't even give you the number of years. So, you know, what happened is you, you turn uh, legal drugs and people abuse those legal drugs. And it's been shown that some of the pharmaceutical companies just, you know, overdid it in poisoning, you know, different communities. You know, there's been places in West Virginia where the pharmaceutical companies were sending more Oxycontins than there were people. So that goes to tell you that it's just not illicit drugs that are an issue, but legal drugs are an issue. And that, you know, when you get into the opioids, then you're looking at heroin, you know, always looking for a, a different drug, a cheaper drug, maybe. And then, you know, our streets, again, are flooded with heroin. And so, you know, back in the 60s, heroin was, was more in the poor communities. And now it's expanded out, let's say, to the suburbs. So, yeah, it, it's been around a long time. The purity of heroin has gone up tremendously. You know, you used to be able to, you had to inject heroin at one time. Now you can snort it. So you can see where the purity levels have really gone up. It used to be 6 or 7%, you know, way back in the day. And now it's up into the 90s. So you can see how over years, you know, how this progresses and how it becomes even more difficult each day. Well, yeah, and I imagine, you know, when you're at, at 6%, like you've got to move a much, much larger volume than when you're at 90. That's right. Yeah. Does the DEA have an involvement when, you know, covering some of the, the non-illicit drugs 
like uh, oxy that's being pushed when you see yeah. these numbers that are higher mm -hmm. than the amount of people in the state. Yeah, we have DEA has regulatory authority as well. And uh, we have what they call drug diversion units. Their responsibility is to, man is to monitor and investigate pharmacies, physicians, you know, and so on within the medical field. So yes, there is, there is an enforcement effort. The enforcement effort really changed, uh, has changed dramatically since I've been there because there's been a, there's never was a real big emphasis on looking at the legal drugs because we were so busy with the illicit drugs that has all changed. Now there's specialized task forces that focuses on drug diversion, you know, and then there's a, there's an accountability. So DEA does do audits on the pharmacies or the, you know, where they manufacture, you know, the chemical plants that manufacture. So there, there's a lot of different uh, things that, that they do. And, you know, there's also systems that are monitored and set up red flags uh, because the way the pharmaceutical industry is set up, it's basically what we call a, you know, a closed operation because it's, here's where the pills are manufactured at. This is where they're sent. And this way you can monitor or try to detect if anything is changing. So for example, like what I mentioned to you, you know, prescriptions are out of control going into West Virginia when you see something like that. So you know that maybe there's a doctor or a pharmacist that are involved or both of them are involved. And, and again, it's a small portion in the medical field, but it still exists. You know, I've got a lot of respect for our medical profession and stuff like that, but nobody can escape the bad apples. I imagine there's a lot of legal barriers in the way to some of this. Is it harder to go after some of that regulatory internal to the U.S. major companies versus uh, your criminal organizations that also operate in the U.S.? Well, here's, here's a known fact. There were some DEA whistleblowers on 60 Minutes. And there was some political shenanigans behind some of these pharmaceutical companies, which that was brought to light. Um, so yeah, there's, there's some shenanigans that go on with some of the, you know, or with members in our own country that are involved in, in making money. You know, there was some situations where DEA was told to back off on of a certain pharmaceutical company or whatever. And, uh, you know, then, you know, like I said, our job is not to be political. Our job is to be law enforcement and to save lives. So we had to bring that to the general public's attention because it wasn't going anywhere else. And sometimes you have to do that. Sometimes you have to be a whistleblower because there is corruption within our own government. And uh, that's unfortunate. But that, again, like I said, everybody has those bad apples. Absolutely. And hopefully. You know, the people who have rightfully, you know, blown the whistle are getting a fair level of treatment. I know that's not always universal, yeah. you know. Yeah, it's not universal. I mean, you're really, uh, you're really sticking your neck out there in a lot of senses, which is reason why we have a whistleblower law was to protect those individuals that come forward. Uh, that's, that's the whole clutch of it, because, um, you know, you can imagine going up against your own agency or people within your own agency, and it doesn't matter who it is, but 
you you know what I'm saying that they have whistleblowers in, in FBI, DEA, CIA, whoever. Once you know you you begin to deal with things, and then you see the corruption end, and then you have to do something. Well, yeah, and it's it's designed to be you know almost a, a check and balance kind of a protective measure. If if somebody's not going to say something, hopefully someone else will. Right. Because yeah, otherwise that would be entirely scary to think like oh i'm about to go up against a a branch of the u.s government well and the other checks and balance used to be our news media against government corruption i don't think it is what it was once once upon a time ago because a lot of times people could go to the news media be protected and expose political or government corruption and now it's almost like some of them are turning a wiffle blind eye and exposing this and, and that's that's the other issue in today's world yeah i've definitely tried to diversify where i get my news from and right. uh a lot of the smaller news reporting is uh trying to call out the larger ones and i think that's good because yeah you know we need to be aware hey these people don't necessarily have your best interest at heart here yeah that's that's the unfortunate part about it i think at one time we all and I want to say the majority of us trusted where the information came from and who was telling us that information. Now, everything is being very skeptical of what somebody's saying. It's a hard way to live. So hopefully yeah. we don't stay there for too much longer. For sure. So alongside going back to, to DEA, just kind of the actions, uh, you said the top of the list is always to try and take out, you know, the lifeblood of any, any criminal organization. Can you speak to some of the other kind of actions going on? Well, I mean, those are, I mean, those are the principal actions to go after these organizations. And, uh, you know, there's a variety of means, there's wiretaps and things of that nature. That's no secret that I'm telling you, they know that they listen, they're listening to. But, you know, those are gathering of information. So we can at least try to see, in essence, of how uh, we try to look at things in, in terms of uh, trying to shut down organizations. There we are. Yeah, there we go. All right. Sorry about that. This is why I always end up doing a lot of trimming in the middle of my podcast. <laughs> There's always something. <laughs> yeah. All right. Since leaving the DEA, you know, as you as you discussed, you've set up your own kind of organization, uh, your yeah. own company, and. Uh, Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. You know, after I retired, I was still debating what I wanted to do in in a sense, because I retired at a young age at 52. And I decided, you know, what am I going to do? Do I want to do X, Y, and Z? I had some potential job offers, you know, but to me, I figured that I had this skill set and it was time to put it forward because I had all this training and education, et cetera. When I decided to go in my own business, that to me was a game changer for me uh, because there's not like, there's nothing like working for yourself. I can't even go back to work for anybody, <laughs> you know, so I, I have to look at it that way, but you know, when, when you're running your own business, it's more than just my investigative experience. It's a learning curve. I got to learn about marketing, which is a big thing, you know, marketing, uh, websites, SEO, and the beat goes on. So it was another challenge for me in developing my own business. So 
and, and I designed the business to, to run sort of like a law enforcement organization in the sense that we had different entities that we can use with different services should that need arise. So for example, like polygraphs, handwriting, DNA, and, and a whole variety of different things that we do. That's how I focused it. We do some public speaking. We've addressed different groups. Uh, we've done some training for lawyers uh, involved working with private investigators and, and, and so on. Yeah, we, we do a, a variety of things. And that's kind of what I like doing. Not just, you know, sitting behind my chair all day and doing something, but getting out, uh, which is a good thing. So we do all kinds of things, surveillances, counter surveillances, interviews, it, and it just depends on the circumstances and situation of what the clients are looking for. Sure. And this might be somewhat dumb of a question. So this is my typical kind of question. Are there large discrepancies between like the, the Hollywood version of some of these things and then the, uh, the real life? Yeah. Well, there always is and always probably will be. Yeah. Uh, because even law enforcement is Hollywoodized. And so is the private investigation businesses are Hollywoodized, as I would call them. Sometimes they try to create this image of what maybe a private investigator is or looks like, or, you know, kind of skates around the law or may do something illegal or whatever. We don't do that. Uh, and I can tell you that the majority of private investigators, a lot of them are former law enforcement, some military and and other backgrounds. So we have our rules, regulations, and ethics. Yeah. And you're not just breaking into hotel rooms and sliding some kind of a contact size chip into the, the telephone. Yeah, exactly. I had seen recently you had some, uh, a talking point about mass shootings. Right. Yeah. I was hoping you could talk a little more to that because it seems like it's one of those things that's in the news quite a bit. Well, it's been a, it's been in the news since Columbine. Sure. But I think we've come a long way since Columbine, uh, although that, uh, you know, the training, which is key to the success of law enforcement and to the success of uh, like in the school systems where they've changed attitudes, they've changed the minds and responses. How can you better fortify your school? It's not to make it into a, a camp of a prison but it's to educate you on how you can do certain things. Monitoring behavior of, of a student who's making threats and saying that he's going to do things. So that all has changed, uh, I'd say, significantly. You know, monitoring social media, putting law enforcement within the schools. A lot of the schools have the, you know, law enforcement officers there now, and, you know, they can deal with those situations. You know, the unfortunate one was that one that happened in Florida where I, I think the exception to the rule was that the sheriff's deputy in Florida was a coward, as opposed to, you know, 99% of the police are going toward fire and not running away. And, you know, that person probably could have prevented some deaths. But, you know, that's, again, as I mentioned to you early on, everybody has them, no matter what organization, because they're people. But I, I saw there, there's a big trend that's changed the mindset uh, I've met with school officials. I've did classes for them. You know, we did some site surveys for them. And, and you're educating the educators because what do they really know about the criminal element or this kind of behavior 
that has violence right behind it because law enforcement sees it every day and has to deal with it. So I think the programs now, and I was, what I was alluding to was the school resource officers programs. There is actual training that goes on called the act of shooter. We've come a long way since Columbine. Can we prevent it? hundred percent. No, it's just not going to happen, but can we prevent some of it? Yeah. I think we we've done a good job of changing some minds and attitudes of what goes on and how we can best protect our kids, our teachers in those facilities. Yeah, absolutely. And is it one of those things when you try and help educate these, you know, these schools or these organizations, hopefully you get like a good amount of backing from both local law enforcement and other first responder agencies, as well as, you know, the teachers, the parents, hopefully everyone has a significant amount of buy-in to a program like this? Oh, I don't think there's any doubt. I think those are the things that I would say is almost 100% that everybody wants the safety for their kids, from the parents to the school administrators to the school teachers. So I think it's one of those programs, you know, does it get controversy? Maybe some issues here and there, but for the most part, everybody knows what the purpose is. Number one is to protect the kids. That's the main purpose. I've never, you know, some of the administrators that I've met with, they're bought and sold on the program. You know, years ago, I'll say pre-Columbine, you know, who would have thought that you have to have armed police in schools? Now, you know, some of the bigger cities where I worked, like Baltimore, uh, they had their own, some of them had their own police departments way back when. So, you know, things have changed again. And, you know, you've seen a lot of that, and, and it's not so much that there was mass shootings in the inner cities, but there was different issues that had to be addressed within that school district. So I would say, as far as I can tell, I've never had those issues, and I've met with different administrators to discuss maybe a plan or, you know, recommend a few things here and there. Yeah, you know, you don't have to have a large history of, of violent acts to to have one major one. So I would say it's something, you know, everyone should probably have a good level of preparedness for. Yeah. You have to be prepared to a certain extent and it's prevention. You know, that's the key or dealing with an issue that you detected and, you know, really in, in the schools, when kids come up to the school teachers, that that's who they trust, you know, and now they built relationships with the resource officer in that school. So that officer is getting direct information from that student. To me, it's a win-win situation. Yeah. Are there other kind of violent crimes or potentially things that could lead to violent crimes that your group kind of works with? Uh, For what, for example? I mean, does anyone ever ever come to your services like, hey, I have a, a stalking problem? Yeah. Yeah, we do. Uh, harassment, stalking, where, uh, you know, if a lot of it is uh, ex-boyfriends, ex-girlfriends, about following people, harassing them, you know, watching their movements. Um, sometimes law enforcement will get involved in it. Sometimes they don't. And it all depends on the circumstances of the case. But you always have to be aware, and especially in stalking cases, I tell the people, know your surroundings know where you're going, know where, 
you know, what's your communication? Do you have your cell phone on speed dial for 911 or the, your family or somebody should know where you're at? And uh, you have to take maybe some preventive measures like putting an alarm system on your house, adding lighting, different things. You know, and once that person goes to the extreme, then the authorities, you know, have to get involved. You know, one of the biggest issue is the, uh, or domestic cases, you know, where there is stalking in there. And so you have what they call PFAs, at least here in Pennsylvania. And it's from, it's a protection from abuse order. So you can get that if you're able to identify your stalker as well. Do they always work? No. Are they always enforced? No. But I would say the majority of times they are. But you have to just rely on your senses more so than waiting for the police to respond that something's going to happen to you. So there's, there's different avenues that you can take. There's different training things that you can do. We live in a, you know, a very, uh, I hate to say this, a dangerous society today. So you got to be aware of what's going around you. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's one of those I don't have a personal experience with. Nobody wants to stalk me. But, you know, I, I have heard from people that stalking can be very hard to kind of both prosecute in the, especially in the early stages, as well as, right. you know, get any kind of help for, because it's so potentially arguable from either side. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, you know, the old saying, there's two sides to every story, but at the end of the day, when uh, we get a stalking, potential stalking client, we go out, we talk and meet with them. We, you know, we take a look and we try to detect what's going on. Sometimes, you know, people say, hey, you may think I'm crazy, but I, I keep seeing this car go by or I keep seeing this. Um, you can't minimize that. That's the issue. If you start minimizing things or second guessing, you know, God forbid something can happen. So we try to do our best as best as we can. You know, once the situation that if we're able to discover it, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll go to the authorities. We'll alert them. We'll tell them, hey, look. You know, we have video of this guy, he's driving at the house or he's falling into a grocery store. You know, this is what's taking place. You know, we try to do those things as best we can. But again, it's a very fluid issue because, you know, they're boyfriend, girlfriend. And so they're having, maybe they're having a domestic and the guy says, well, hey, I just went into the bar and she happened to be there. How do you dispel that until you actually see him following her to a bar? So that's how you, you know, you try to detect those things. Yeah. And that seems like an invaluable asset that yeah. someone should be taking advantage of if they can, yeah, no. you know, if they can reach out and do that, that's right. definitely important. And I appreciate your time immensely today. Uh, if you want to go ahead and, you know, plug your podcast, especially sure. uh, for all the audience members, anybody that's looking to listen to something, get into something a little different. Yeah, well, we have a, a podcast. It's, it's called For Let Investigates. It's a true life law enforcement experience. It's not Hollywood. And we talk to retired law enforcement people and the types of cases they were involved with. I've had a couple, you know, I've had quite a few DEA agents on talk about Pablo Escobar, uh, just so many different things. And then our website is www.fcisllc.com. There you go. All right. Well, I hope people check you out and I appreciate you coming on today. Thank you. Thank you very much.
Thanks for listening to another episode of the Just Dumb Enough podcast. If you're listening to this in the week it was put out, I am in Florida right now. If you're in Florida, let me know. Let's hang out. I know it's a big state, but I got some time. I appreciate everyone that has given us a five-star review on Apple. I think we are almost as many reviews as we are countries, and that's pretty impressive. If you want to suggest any topics or experts, get a hold of us, dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com, or just dumb enough podcast pretty much everywhere else. Right, I look forward to seeing all of you in the next couple episodes. Bye bye.